A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anusha Kellyan, and my colleagues Stephen Bush, Patrick Maguire and Alva Ray. This week we have an interview with the Labour leadership contender Lisa Nandy and you ask us, coronavirus, question mark, question mark, question mark. We try and answer your questions about what's going on. So, I guess it's a very quiet week in politics and life. Welcome to the first of what I'm sure will be a number of very unusual episodes of the New Statesman podcast, because I suspect the sound quality will not be, I was actually not be at the level you're used to, will be even lower than the level than our <laughs> listeners are used to. Uh, or, so perhaps, let's do or, a... or perhaps better, who knows? Yeah, <laughs> so, so joining you from under the sea is Sebastian, aka Patrick Maguire. Anoush, say hi. Hiya. So today we're going to start with a section we like to call... You ask us. And I somehow feel the call and response is not going to survive into the era of remote workers. We, <laughs> you wish. Yeah. We, as I, I imagine even our slowest witted of listeners will have clocked, have been sent home and are all engaging in measures of social distancing. So I thought we'd basically broadly talk about the political response so far, seeing as the number one question we have been sent is basically some variant on coronavirus, three question marks, exclamation mark, or WPS. (laughs) Yeah, so Anoush, what is the current state of play at the time of recording, which is Wednesday afternoon, in terms of the level of economic offer for people while we're in this period of isolation slash social distancing? So building on the budget last week, which did have some quite wide ranging special economic interventions for the effects of coronavirus, Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor and Boris Johnson, alongside the Chief Scientific Advisor Sir Patrick Balance gave another press conference yesterday evening to massively expand those measures. So now there are big loans available for the bigger companies, grants for smaller companies. Basically, they've massively expanded the help for all of the places that they, they've now advised people to stop going to, like pubs, restaurants, sort of leisure and entertainment and hospitality places. So there was more of an acknowledgement that these smaller businesses are going to really struggle. And that's that's massively built on the, the original measures that were announced last week. Um, as well as this, there's more for covering sort of cash costs. And all of that is supposed to be available from from the beginning of next week. There's also cover for people who are going to struggle to pay their mortgage. And business rates have been stopped for every business for, for a year. 
there's three months mortgage mortgage cover. I think that's that's basically all of the main things. Have I missed anything out? No, I think that's pretty exhaustive. It's interesting. It's interesting in terms of the politics of this. One of my duties as as regular readers of the New States will know is I write the weekly PMQs review, which came today via Five Live from the concourse at Liverpool Lime Street station. And the one thing that struck me is even though it was a much more constructive session than we're used to, partly consequence of there being far fewer people there, there were a common theme to all the Labour contributions, which were a variation on, yeah, this is fine, but what are you doing for the low paid? What are you doing for the self-employed? What are you doing about statutory sick pay? And really strikingly, actually, I was listening, I've been listening to a lot of Five Live, which I haven't listened to sort of regularly since my granddad used to alternate between that and talk sport in his car. So I was sort of reared on a diet of John Gaunt, uh, George Galloway's mother of all talk shows and, and, and the Five Live 606 phone in. But the really striking thing on, on, on Five Live, if you think that's the radio station of White Man Man, the top of the bulletin after Rishi Sunak's statement was the government has spent all this money, but it's doing nothing for renters. So quite clearly there is there's a lot of stuff the government still needs to do and still will need to do that it has, you know, quite clearly left out as far as millions of people will be concerned. Because I, I think you're, you're sort of precisely right about the politics of this. And yeah, I think actually the big problem is, although I kind of think from a policy perspective, Rishi Sunak's been very clear that he thinks, in my view correctly, that you're much better off using existing systems, increasing their generosity and eligibility, because when you, whenever you introduce a new system, even if it will one day be better, rather like the system we have to record the podcast this week, next week it will be better, the week after it will be better still. But ultimately, in a crisis, getting people the income support they need is not like getting back to studio quality podcasting. You kind of need to be able to do it right away. So it makes sense to do that. And I think the most important announcement yesterday was him saying, look, I'm going to, in this emergency powers bill, which we'll discuss uh, a bit more anon, I'm going to give myself the powers to adjust this generosity upwards as I see fit. But in terms of the politics of this, you know, when we do eventually are back, allowed back out from our caves, there will be another election. And I think that the political image of a government then has to be persuaded to look after other people other than its people. Bear in mind, even among the people who voted for them the first time in 2019, there are still considerable doubts about the Conservative Party's commitment to people other than its people, I think is probably going to have a long afterlife. I mean, this whole period will have a huge long afterlife, right? I mean, like, this is, we are going to be in a completely different political and every other type of world when we eventually do get to leave our homes. Definitely. And I think not just renters, but I think um, probably this crosses over quite a lot with renters, but they really haven't still got to grips with those who work in the gig economy or on zero hours contracts or part time or on pay that's lower than um, makes you eligible for statutory sick pay, which still isn't particularly high. So I don't I don't I don't know if you guys agree, but they I don't think they've got to grips with those millions of workers who, even if they do get the statutory sick pay that's been extended, that's not enough for them and that's not incentivizing them to stop working if they need to stop working yeah it does feel like in many ways the levers they're pulling are sort of if you imagine the economy in say 2001 the levers that and the economy in 2001 is going through this crisis the levers they're pulling will make a great deal of sense and then it's kind of like they're like wait what is it i mean which in it's ironic it's one of one of the levers that 
I and I think it's fair to say most sort of welfare policy people think they should pull is you just rip out all of the conditionality out of UC. You rip out the minimum income threshold, you rip out the mix, the maximum income threshold, and you just say, look, you can claim this and it will pay for your housing and it will pay for everything else, right? Because yeah. that is the easy off the shelf thing. Now, the thing they are clearly reluctant to let go of for political reasons is the five week wait. But the five week wait doesn't make any sense in terms of how people on low incomes are paid in the modern world now anyway. Like if you said to like a delivery driver, oh, you're getting this money in five weeks because that will substitute how you're paid. They're like, I get paid in micropayments. What, what, are, you, what are you talking about? Why do, yeah. you, why do you think this is relevant? And it does feel like in that kind of what we already knew was a slightly old fashioned view of the economy, partly, I think, due to the Tory party, partly due to some institutional inertia on Whitehall. You can kind of see like the levers are correct for those parts of the economy. But it's like, a what is a gig worker? Even though they've talked about those people loads. They don't seem to have any kind of idea of how you respond to it from a policy perspective. Yeah, and I'm afraid that, not to be too political, but I do think the Tory outlook on that kind of work is really important part of this, because often they'll be celebrating how flexible uh, riding for Deliveroo or driving for Uber can, can make your life, which it can for many workers. But the problem here is that, you know, that flexibility doesn't at all mesh with our benefit system, like you said. So if people are immediately losing their their work, their hours, there's nothing really that they can access to get that money back. So the traditional benefit system doesn't help them in that way. So the flexibility, which, you know, is, is sort of sold as a plus for this type of work, just isn't relevant at, at this point. Well, one of the really interesting things about PMQs today, and this was fascinating and telling on a number of levels, Ian Blackford got on his hind legs and for a change <laughs> by a pantomime chorus of groans or you know uh, Johnson's favorite line which is regardless of what Ian Blackford asks he says you're going to build a border at Berwick independence is a nonsense Ian Blackford got up and bear in mind he's not of the he's not born of the sort of Jim Sillers pre-leadership Alex Salmon sort of 79 group left-wing tradition in the SNP he's very much a and I'm sure lots of people disagree with this but he's much more of the sort of traditional sort of Tom Tory former investment banker, sort of that sort of tradition in the SNP. And, you know, he got up and was talking about a UBI, universal basic income. And, you know, when Ian Blackford talks about UBI, you assume it's a, you know, Swiss Swiss hedge fund he's been doing. <laughs> Boris Johnson didn't endorse it, but he didn't say no. He said, and he was in a very conciliatory mood, and he was saying, well, of course, we would consider whatever. And, you know, it doesn't feel like an exaggeration or sort of like a breathless observe a long read on Finland right to say feels like on some of these questions of political economy we're maybe approaching a paradigm shift that we're not really clocking because you've got to wonder if even Donald Trump is talking about sending checks in the post to uh, a thousand dollars to every American or if you know we're talking about a universal basic income you sort of got a question is once given will this sort of make the UC point of you know tapering and being able to work around it whilst being in receipt of working uh, in benefits without the sort of you know having to moonlight or work foreigners or, or, or whatever i'm sorry i mean foreigners in the sense of um you know not for your boss not in right. the daily mail use of the word foreigners obviously you, you, you have the question is is this one of these things that once you step over the threshold once say any government does this and this is over will people then say well hang on i'm actually really enjoying this you know, this, this has given me, we've reassessed the way we're working. It's actually 
sort of what is politically expedient or what is economically necessary might actually mean our politics looks quite different at the end of it. It's a really interesting question. Well, yeah, I mean, I think so. I've done a very, very long piece about what I think the big questions and should be influencing our politics coverage, our domestic politics coverage at this time on the website. And one of the things I sort of cover off briefly is we see 1945 for lots of of good reasons and also lots of it's convenient for historians and you've got to draw a line somewhere. We see 1945 as this in British politics. But of course, actually, the state in 1951 at the end of six years of Labour government was smaller than the state that they inherited in 1945. Right. Yeah, it was it was more directed towards compassion. It did all sorts of other things. But you actually the kind of change in what people expected and thought the state could do happened during that period of crisis. Now, I think UBI is poorly designed for what people want it to do next, not least because I just think it's easier to just like jerry-rig the existing benefit system. But right. and, and also because you want you want a majority of people to be able to stay home. But I think Anusha's point about flexibility, right, it made me think about that old buzzword, flex, flex security, which is this idea you had a flexible economy, but a very strong uh, welfare network, which allowed people to compensate for the fact that we're all going to have multiple careers. Very few of us are going to have particularly generous final pen, salary pensions, but you just have a continually present and very strong welfare state. Now, obviously, in the actual world of Britain in 2020, you have the flexibility without the security. I think then it will be very politically difficult once you've accepted now, there are there are specific virus fighting reasons why the five week wait is bad. And the five week wait could be great in normal times, but it would still be a terrible idea if you were trying to encourage someone to take two weeks off today. But I just think all of those changes are things that are hard to walk back. And I think the other sort of interesting thing about today in the House right, is that one of the reasons why it was more collegiate is because there were few people around to kind of like yell and boo. But the other reason is that a lot of MPs, particularly a lot of MPs on the Conservative side, think that sooner rather than later, a bunch of the politicians currently on opposing sides of the House are going to end up in some kind of coalition together. And that, again, does hugely change politics right now. There are a number of reasons why I think it will be harder to attack I was about to do a kind of Keir Starmer, Lisa Nandy, Rebecca Long-Bailey, which I think is true of all three of them, but real talk. Keir Starmer. There are a number of reasons why I think it's harder to demonise any of those three politicians in the way than Jeremy Corbyn was attacked by the Conservative Party. However, the kind of reversion to normal, as it were, I, you know, Ed Miliband or even Tony Blair, I just think it's very hard to do that if you've had a prolonged period of, yeah, like, I mean, like Sadiq Khan, who I swear only two weeks ago was a big scary Muslim who wanted to steal Brexit, was responsible for London, Londoners having, you know, more knives than iPhones, etc., etc., is now in the COBRA meeting, right? That does change what becomes, that reduces what's politically plausible to use as an attack line. And I think so that, yeah, we are, this is going to change politics in a very profound way. We just don't quite know what other than our jobs when we get out of social distancing, whenever that will be, will be very different than they are even now, let alone than they were, you know, the last time we were all together in the podcast catacomb. Yeah, and I do think that these kind of national crises, I was editing a piece by an academic who, she is a historian of social crises. And I do think these kind of things are a leveller and they also change the way that the population sort of sees itself and sees its politicians. So people have criticised Boris Johnson for talking about the government being on a wartime footing and calling the virus a deadly enemy and things. But actually, it, it, you know, there are a lot of parallels with the sort of build-up of 
in Britain t- towards war. So like 1939, the Munich crisis, when everyone was having gas masks fitted and there were trenches being dug in public parks and things. There are quite a lot of parallels. And, and although that can have a massive impact negatively on the sort of psychology of a nation it also does unite people and that kind of is the sort of grassroots reflection of this idea of a national government but I don't know how you know likely that that outcome is but that that also could be something that comes out of this you know well so one of the questions we've been being asked a lot is you know one of the things you said earlier was you know not to be sort of too party political and I just wanted to ask people you know what do you think both in terms of I guess your own feelings and also in terms of what you think the voters that just casually even triloquise 60 million people, why the hell not, do think about the correct level of party political interaction at this time. You know what? I'm finding it really difficult um, because not doing face-to-face reporting, I don't know whether you found this, it's difficult to pick up what people are actually thinking and not to sort of get sucked into social media equals what the nation is thinking. So I wouldn't really have that much confidence to answer that question. But I think there was genuine concern that didn't run along political lines about the approach that the government initially took to to trying to squash the the outbreak of of the virus. Um, And that clearly, you know, was something that was being fed back to them by scientists and doctors, not just people who are trying to look for any weaknesses in Boris Johnson's premiership. So I think that's you know, I don't think that can really be counted as party political, but it obviously was a representation of strong opinion. And I don't know whether it's linked, but Boris Johnson's polling, his sort of honeymoon period disappeared and nearly half the population now have a negative opinion of him. In terms of the Labour candidates, I think, I mean, we'll hear Alva's interview with Lisa Nandy on this very podcast, but I think that they've struck the right tone in terms of sort of picking up on individual concerns like the um, omission of renters in the new measures to help people through this economic crisis but they haven't been too those concerns have been sort of framed in policy terms rather than party political terms which I I think sounds about right what do you think yeah I mean I completely share all of your concerns and difficulties about the because even when you're interviewing people on the phone, you realise, I feel you can't see the, oh, but your face is saying this, but your body language is saying that. Yeah, exactly, yeah. I mean, for me, the other example is the number of people who told me in 2015 that they were like, oh, well, I think it's a bit wrong that the Prime Minister is saying the SNP shouldn't be in government. And it's like, but you visibly think they shouldn't be and are planning to vote Tory to prevent <laughs> an Ed Miliband Tory, Tory government. So you kind of can't work out what people... But I think... you then yeah, I think then you're exactly right in that people do want quite policy-based opposition. I think the interesting thing is you have um you have two quite different theories of how best to maximise the amount you're heard. So lots of people are understandably kind of on the internet are going, why is Keir Starmer so quiet? Because his theory of how you do opposition in this period is you basically wait and you do your big sort of like here's my Guardian article about what they should do at the end of the day, because that means you're more likely to be quoted once and to be seen as authoritative and fair. Whereas you have kind of sort of Lisa Nally's approach, which is basically to kind of go, I'm going to be very active and any individual one of the things I do won't get picked up. But the fact that I'm around, as it were, will be picked up on. And that's essentially been the kind of approach that she has taken. And I mean, 
I guess the weird thing is one of the many things we don't know is we do not know how media consumption is going to change during the period that we are all about to have of predominantly living our lives inside our homes. Yeah, that's a really good point because I, I do wonder how that will change. People will have more time throughout the day to listen to talk radio. Sometimes you can't do that in an office job. And I, you know, I'd love to see the statistics for how many people are tuning into the six o'clock and ten o'clock news. And then, you know, of course, social media will have an even bigger role than it already does because a lot of people won't be, you know, doing their usual work um, and will be able to sort of, you know, not to be too rude, but will be will be able to sort of dick around on, on their computers a lot more than usual. So it will be interesting to see it. We can't tell yet, but it will be interesting to see how much news people are consuming and from where. Yeah, no, and I think that is going to be... I yeah you know, no I don't want this just to be a podcast in which I've gone like of course things will change but mm. yeah as you as you say right like and I think one of the intriguing things about the leadership election is broadly Keir Starmer is winning because she's the candidate of Facebook right and Lisa Nandy and Becky Long Bailey have both improved their standard among kind of what you might describe as the political elite in, in every sense right in that like the media has a more favourable idea of who Lisa Nandy is. The media has mm. changed its opinion slightly and softened it towards Becky Long Bailey. And broadly, if the if you were assessing the leadership election on Twitter, you'd be like going, oh, I feel like one of those two is going to win. But you go on Facebook and there's this kind of huge, like, Keir Starmer energy, right? Now, the question is, is will the fact that we all have more time to be online mean that as an electorate we become, you know, extremely online and does that mean that the political style that has worked very well for Keir Starmer will have to change or will quite the reverse thing happen and one of the things I'm finding really interesting is it feels some morning call readers are basically going on this weird journey where some people have said oh I'm reading everything some people have said to me I read your email and I listen to like Radio 6 and that's all I do because I know that the important news will be on the 6 and there'll be a useful update in the email and that way I'm not stressing myself out and all of those will have major implications for how people organise themselves politically and what political leaders effective opposition looks like Mm, yeah no I haven't thought of that that it could go the other way and people could be switching off from reading the sort of torrent of coverage because there's very little out there that's not coronavirus related at the moment that might also change depending on what people are actually reading yeah one of the interesting trends during Brexit I thought was that everyone including the BBC which I think very much was stepping on the edge of its public service remit in doing this started focusing on serving the incredibly engaged people who were really into brexit on both sides right Mm. and even though i think it's fair to say that most journalists were not surprised by the outcome of the 2019 election i think in many ways one of the one of the things that people did not sufficiently convey in their coverage in a lot of places was the fact that most of the country was not going, oh, I can't wait to listen to Brexit cast. Oh, I'm so glad I have four morning emails about Brexit. A bunch of people were just saying, like, I would, I just want my regular politics to come back. And they were the bulwark, particularly of those Remainers who stayed with the Tories. And one of the big, the signal greatest failures of pro-Europeans was to, the failure to land the argument that the only way to stop Brexit being discussed was not to do it or it turns out the other way to stop brexit being discussed was for a pandemic to spread over the world exile <laughs> <our> homes. Um, <laughs> be careful what you wish for guys <laughs> mm. 
One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hello and welcome to part two of the New Statesman podcast. This is Alva. For part two, we're doing something a little bit different. I'm not joined by Anush or Stephen or Patrick. I'm instead joined down the line from Wigan by none other, of course, than Lisa Nandy, Labour leadership candidate. So Lisa, thank you very much for joining us on the New Statesman podcast in quite extraordinary circumstances. So when we planned this, we'd of course expected that you would be joining the four of us in the New Statesman offices and we would just sort of have a a general chat about your Labour leadership bid. But things are different now. I would kind of like to start, if I may, just by kind of getting stuck into the question of how you're trying to be a a responsible opposition at the moment and, and how you're trying to approach this as a Labour leadership contender, which is a bit of an unusual situation to be in. Yeah, I mean, you could say that again. It's, um, <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of strange things that's happened during this contest, but I think this is probably the most unpredictable. And it's completely changed the nature of the contest, really. I mean, I've spent all morning fielding calls from people. I've got an owner of a nursery who has been told that even if they're told to close by the government, her insurance won't kick in. And I've got... Um, volunteers and offers of help coming in from all over the community and I've been talking to my council leader about some of the volunteer response that we're trying to get off the ground so it's not a normal time during a leadership contest but nor should it be really. Yesterday I had a conference call with Jeremy and Jonathan Ashworth and Kieran and Becky just to make sure that we're all on the same page and asking the right questions and making sure that we act and work together over the next few weeks on this issue because it's really important obviously that it doesn't become politicised generally but also that Labour can ask the tough questions and and work together as a team to do it so it's it's a bit different although to be honest with you that is how I've tried to run the campaign from the very beginning is that I've tried to make sure as have the other candidates to their credit that we don't take the opportunity to fight each other that we're clear about where we disagree but we work constructively together on the things we agree on and I've also tried from the very start to talk directly to the country and not just to the membership because what happened on December the 12th was a very I mean it was the most unprecedented thing I think that's happened to Labour for 100 years we saw our entire Labour base collapse in large parts of the country including my own And I was very clear when I started that this would be the last chance where people were looking at us in this contest to see if we'd got it and that we changed. So right from the very beginning, I've spent most of my time out in the country having those conversations with members of the public. And so in that sense, over the last week or so, while we've been trying to coordinate a volunteer response and we've been handing over the app that we developed for campaigning for our volunteers in the contest to third party organisations so they can use it to help 
people who are stranded in their homes. In in lots of ways, that hasn't really changed because we always mm. began with a sense that we needed to involve the public in this contest. And that is even more important now than ever. It's interesting that you mentioned that um, conference call with, with Jeremy and, and with the other leadership contenders, because a thing that has kind of struck me in the past week or so is that you're in a kind of strange situation where Labour obviously has an acting leader still in Jeremy Corbyn and he's making interventions and statements and sort of speaking for the Labour Party. But you also have you and Keir Starmer and Rebecca Long-Bailey who are each, in a sense, trying to model your own idea of what responsible opposition would look like at this time. And I accept your point that you're broadly, you know, taking the same approach, but... I think that there are still slight differences in that, I don't know if you would agree, but my sense is that you've been maybe the most prominent of the three in that you've been on Mar and you've done more media appearances. And as you say, you, you've, you've maintained that line of communication with the public. Um, but I see in comments on social media a little bit that people, you know, criticise you sometimes for making it party political. And then on the other hand, with someone like Keir Starmer, even though he maybe on the face of it isn't approaching things that differently to you, people are saying that he isn't visible enough. People are sort of accusing him of keeping his head down. I'm just, I'm wondering what you make of that, whether you're, you're making a conscious effort to, to show leadership in this race by keeping those lines of communication open or sort of what conversations you're having behind the scenes about how you can do this in a in a responsible way and, and get the balance right? Well, I mean, all of that is particularly important at the moment with the legislation yeah. that's just about to come before Parliament because mm. we've got to get that right. And, of course, it's important to make sure that we get that legislation in place as quickly as possible. But yeah. we know from history that all of these things, particularly laws that are rushed through in times of emergency, can have very, very serious repercussions. The government was press-releasing a couple of Fridays ago that they wanted to give police and immigration officials sweeping powers to arrest and detain people who were sick. That obviously has huge implications, not just for people who are arrested, but also for our policing services that have always yeah. rested on the idea of community consent. So we've got to get this right, and we've got to do our job as an official opposition and make sure that we ask the right questions and that we get the right answers from government. And the reason that I took a decision over the weekend to go out and say what nobody had said so far, which was that this had turned into a shambles over the last 48 hours, is because I was inundated with people from across the country, including at home in my community, saying that effectively, because there'd been a complete vacuum of information for 24 hours, that the leadership of this crisis was being delegated from the government to them. There was a publican in my constituency who said that he felt, by saying that customers shouldn't go to the pub, um, but refusing to say that pubs should close, that he was being asked to show a level of leadership about mm. getting the balance right between keeping people safe and watching his business collapse, that he felt rightly rested on the government. And into that vacuum step all sorts of people who do what they believe is in the right interests of their family in order to keep their families safe, but can actually unwittingly make it worse. We saw it over the weekend with stockpiling of food and supermarkets mm. running out of essentials. 
And one of the things I've been dealing with this morning is the fact that we're trying to make sure that we get food to elderly people who can't go into supermarkets particularly early and make sure that they get things before they run out. So it was important for me that we stepped up at the weekend and that we said that the response wasn't good enough privately. Mm. Almost every Tory MP that I speak to was saying exactly the same thing. And I think there are members of the cabinet as well who've been quite frustrated with the government's position. And it is really, really mm. essential that we do that. I think we're seeing now at this moment why leadership really, really matters. It always matters in a country and it always matters that you have the right people in 10 Downing Street. But it yeah. particularly matters now in an unprecedented crisis. We saw it in 2008 when the the government came out very, very strongly right at the outset and said that they wouldn't allow banks to fail and people's life savings to disappear and their pensions mm. to go. And that was really, really important to prevent on run on the banks. And I think in the last 24 hours, we started to see the government do that. The announcement yesterday was by no means a small thing. It's mm. an unprecedented level of borrowing, and that is right. But I don't think that that would be happening unless there had been some pressure on the government in order to act. And it's really important that Labour gets this right. Mm-hmm. So you think that that's an example of, of effective opposition, basically, because it has pushed the government to take action in various ways? And to would you agree that they have improved their communications in the past while since you made that intervention? I think the government has definitely realised the gravity of the situation and realised that they're going to have to do far, far more in order to reassure the public. In South Korea, they realised very early on that in a public health crisis, public confidence is key. I think our government was very slow to understand that, but they are now starting to realise it and to change mm. the way that they that they keep the public informed. But for me, this isn't just about being an opposition. This is about leadership. And Mm -hmm. one of the reasons that I came out first to talk about the issues of sick pay is because I've been talking to the trade unions and particularly to the GMB. And this is the biggest issue for most of their members. And so it was really important to get that on the agenda early. And Jonathan Ashworth, to his credit, took it up and pushed it very, very hard from the front bench. We've actually Mm -hmm. got an opposition day debate going on about it right now to try and make sure that the government gets this right, because there are still all sorts of outstanding issues about it. But otherwise, what we're going to have is people who are very ill going into work. And that is particularly true in areas like the gig economy with Uber drivers, in areas like home care, where people are looking after very sick people and very old people who are potentially more at risk than anybody else. And that is a public health crisis waiting to happen. So we've got to make sure that we get it right. And that's why it was important, I think, that I went out and talked about those issues, Mm. but also why it's important that Labour is a party that doesn't just pronounce from the dispatch box in Westminster, but is actually rooted in our community so that we can see and hear these things developing in real time and make sure that we surface them. And that's been a big theme of your entire leadership campaign, this idea that all political parties tend to lead too much from the top down and people feel disengaged and you want to empower people to to make their own decisions and that's a that's a big strand of your pitch really but I think we're thinking about leadership a little bit differently in this time of a crisis that it's not just sort of a figurehead at the top of a party but at a time like this it's really a a sort of deeper and more emotional role um, of being someone that people will listen to and take comfort from and unite behind. I think it's interesting you've talked about how you would be a different sort of leader throughout your campaign. And I'm wondering 
what would your leadership look like in a crisis like this if you were the prime minister in theory? I mean, I think the first thing that you've got to do is go out and connect with the public. They've got to understand that that there are people at the helm in a time of crisis who will do whatever it takes and who have as much riding on this as the people that they seek to represent. And there were echoes of that when President Macron came out with a, a statement about 24 hours before our government where he said that no business would be allowed to fail and it was clear and it was unequivocal and it was clear that it mattered to him. And I think that matters to people out in the country. If they believe that there are people making those decisions who are as affected by them as this crisis. You know, I have elderly parents. I've got a young child. You know, lots of my friends work in the health service. This is real for me and it matters. And people need to know that and they need to understand it. And that's why I've said all the way through this campaign that we have to go out and emotionally reconnect with people again because the the gap between people and politics has become so enormous over recent decades and I'm just not sure that representative democracy can survive if that is allowed to continue and of course it matters more at a time like this and in a time of crisis than ever before but I think the other thing is that one thing is different about being a political leader and that is that you have the power to do something about all of these things and so you have to be prepared to take unpopular decisions you have to be prepared to go out and make an unpopular case and that's what I've been trying to do throughout this leadership campaign you know when I went out and said that I believe in the right of people to free movement I said that a year ago when at a time when the Labour Party was refusing to accept that and saying that we wanted to end free movement but I said it because it was the right thing to do and it's an argument that I think that we need to win and when I went out at the beginning of this contest and said Labour has to change or will die and will deserve to, it's traditionally not the way that you would win a, a leadership contest by telling people that it's maybe the end of the party. But actually, I believe it is that serious. And I think that's an argument that I had to win during the course of this campaign. And I think right mm. now with coronavirus, it's it's more important than ever that we go out and we tell people there are going to be things that we're going to ask of you over the next few weeks and months they're going to be very, very difficult, but we'll be there for you. So we notably haven't mentioned Boris Johnson by name yet in this conversation. And I'm wondering, without making this two-party political at a time when there isn't that much appetite for that, I'm just wondering what you make of his leadership at the moment. I mean, I think it's been noticeable in the last few days that the people who've been out and trying to show leadership in government are people like Rishi Sunak and Matt Hancock, who came to the chamber to give a very lengthy statement. He didn't have huge amounts of answers on the things that really mattered, and that's something that I know Labour rightly on the front bench have been pressing him about. But there, there is at least a sense from the Chancellor and the Health Secretary that they are trying to reassure the public. And I think we've seen a pattern with Boris Johnson over the last few months where he does tend to go missing at moments of national crisis. I mean, it was notable during the floods that, half the country was underwater and while he'd been very visible during the election campaign and where there was flooding he was much less visible now and I think the public does need to see a very present visible leader at moments like this taking the helm making decisions communicating with the public if you compare that to Gordon Brown not just during the financial crisis but also if you think about the last Labour government during the foot and mouth crisis as well there was very regular communication from the very top and it's really important. Going back to the thing you were saying about about the need to scrutinise government at this time because there's a possibility that they'll be bringing in legislation very quickly 
that will have long-lasting consequences. And that sort of mainly relates to, you know, having police on the streets, potentially the army on the streets. What happens if this gets more intense if we go into lockdown? I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on how we should balance democracy and civil liberties with the need to contain this crisis if you've any concerns about that or and what your approach would be i think it's a really difficult balance to strike at the moment because we are a liberal democracy and our policing model is one that operates on the principle of consent and without the consent of communities things can break down very very quickly i grew up in the 1980s in manchester not very far from the scene of the Moss Side riots. I was too young to remember them, but my family were very involved in in trying to resolve all the issues that that threw up. And the consequences of that lasted a very, very long time, where you saw the relationship between the community and the police just completely break down. So we've got to be careful about how we approach this, but we've also got to act quickly and make Mm. sure that we put in place measures to keep people safe. Now, this is perhaps not as difficult as it might appear, because I think Mm. right across the country, there are people who desperately want to do the right thing to keep themselves and their families safe, but also to keep other people safe. But they need Mm. to know what the right thing to do is. And that's why the package of measures that the government puts in place to support people in order to do the right thing is really, really important. The government Mm. is clearly going to have to put in place some more restrictive measures. It may include things like food rationing, It may include things like shutting down schools and other institutions or telling people that they need to work from home and shutting down Mm. workplaces as well. But if they decide to do that, then they need to make sure that the measures are in place so that people can actually follow that advice without creating significant harm or problems for them and their families. Mm. I mean, I accept your point that there's a lot of public will to do the right thing, as you're saying. So maybe it won't be that hard to get people to follow government advice. But we're in a situation at the moment where most things are recommendations. People still have free will, they're free agents. If they want to ignore government advice, they can. I'm not sure what the likelihood is at the moment that the government would make those measures stricter and it would be, you know, there would be a ban on going outside where, you know, there would be police in the streets and ask, you know, making sure that people had a reason to be outside. But in theory, what do you, what would you make of the idea of, the government telling people what they had to do and having police enforcing that in terms of if you know we had to go into lockdown for a few weeks i think the right balance is probably for government to close down institutions and provide support for people who need to carry on going to work and to do other things so essential healthcare workers for example mm. emergency services and so on rather than target individuals for enforcement action. And in some other countries, there's been complete lockdowns where people are not allowed onto the streets unless they've got permission to do that. I think that's probably not the right balance in this country, given the profound implications that that would have for civil liberties Mm. and how alien that is to our culture. I've heard senior figures in government making that point. I think they're probably right, but that means... The legislation that goes through Parliament over the next few days is going to be really, really important. And one of the concerns that I have about that legislation is the ability of Parliament to scrutinise it, given that the instruction has gone out that people should not attend debates in the chamber and questions in the chamber unless they've got a particular contribution Mm -hmm. to make, um, that we're not voting through division lobbies anymore, but we haven't brought in electronic voting, which seems 
to me to be an incredibly short-sighted thing to do we need to make sure Mm. that we get this right it may be that when we come out the other side of this and obviously there's a lot to do to make sure that we keep people safe and that we do come out the other side of this but it may be that when we do what it will do is throw a spotlight on all of these areas from something as small as electronic voting in the house of commons which many people including me have been campaigning for for years because we think it would make for a better more inclusive democracy all the way through to the amount of resilience that we've got in families in terms of their incomes in communities in terms of the powers that councils have in order to actually shape and drive their own communities. It may be that we come out of this a profoundly changed country, much, much stronger and much more able to withstand shocks like this in the future. And whilst I would never suggest at all that there's anything positive about this crisis, it's the most serious and distressing crisis that has happened in my lifetime. This has to be the moment when we look at the country that we've built and understand the weaknesses that are inherent in our structures and start to put them right because I'm I'm sure this won't be the last time that this happens in a globalised world and we need to become much, much more stronger and much more resilient. I think mm. the, the lesson from these global crises is that we're only as strong as our most vulnerable and that means we need to do far, far more to protect the most vulnerable here and overseas. And on that, how do you think that this uh, this crisis might affect politics in the longer term and the various consensuses that there are within politics around the rule of markets and GDP and the deficit and so on. In PMQs earlier today, um, Felicity Buchan, who's the Tory MP for Kensington, said something like, now is not the time for thinking about public deficits. And I'm wondering if, you know, we're seeing, for example, the government have brought in measures to ensure that the homeless and vulnerably housed will be given housing during this time so that they're able to self-isolate. And some people will be looking at that and thinking, well, we if we can do that in a crisis, why can't we do it all the time? And that's just one, one small example. But do you think that this might change our politics in the longer term and the consensus is within it? I think it probably will. In the last few days, there's been quite an extraordinary consensus growing up between economists from the left to the right of the political scale about not just a huge stimulus, which the government responded to yesterday, but also that that spending shouldn't just focus on growth and GDP, which is traditionally how we measure progress, but about maintaining employment and protecting individuals and businesses as well. And that seems to me a very significant thing, because for decades we've measured progress in terms of where we get most growth in terms of productivity and there have been a growing number of economists over recent years including Diane Coyle who is incredibly well known in this field who have talked about how GDP just doesn't measure the things that most matter to people so you've got whole areas of the country where we're piling in investment because that is how you get the most bang for your buck in terms of productivity and growth and other areas of the country that have been completely written off and now have very little resilience, not just to do well in normal times, but actually to survive a crisis like this. And those measures have allowed us to ignore the huge growth in health inequalities. There was the Marmot report a few weeks ago, which showed the gap in life expectancy is now growing and life expectancy in decline. Um, It doesn't tell us anything about the climate crisis and Mm. how well or badly we're dealing with that. 
I think GDP is basically a relic of a different time. Prioritise economic growth over people. And I think what we'll probably mm-hmm. see is a consensus building over the next few months that says that that is going to have to fundamentally change. And so would that mean... I know that psychologists sometimes recommend a well-being index as well. So the access that people have to green spaces and the relative mental well-being of people, things that would tie into the Marmot report on the the social indicators of, of life expectancy and so on. But do you mean a, a sort of well-being index or what other sort of things would would come in to, to sit alongside GDP as the metrics by which we measure progress? I think well, well-being and measuring well-being is an important part of how you measure policy success. Years ago, when I worked with children in the voluntary sector, before I came into Parliament, the last Labour government was trialling an approach which looked at the well-being of children and young people in the country. And they found that while over a decade they'd met almost every measure of progress that they'd set for themselves, whether it was reducing teenage pregnancy or drug and alcohol addiction, they then found that children in this country were amongst the unhappiest in the Western world, which suggested that something was going wrong with the policies that we were setting and how we were actually appraising them. But I think this goes further than that as well. In Sweden, for example, they assess their policies on the ability to create long-term sustainable growth. So what we've Mm -hmm. seen in many parts of the country that lost industry 40 years ago, parts of the country now that are ageing significantly, those red wall communities that are more susceptible to the coronavirus than other areas because of the, the health inequalities in the wider population, What you saw was that as those industries disappeared, often governments would pursue policies of tax incentives to persuade a major employer to come and base themselves in an area. So in Barnsley, for example, the major employer is now ASOS. And what we've seen over that time is that when that one major employer leaves the area or closes its doors, that the entire area and local economy then collapses. And we've seen very little attention paid to the fact that those jobs are often low paid, low skilled and offer very little career progression. So you don't build the resilience into the local area in terms of family incomes and a viable future for the population who live there. So I think we're going to start seeing very, very different approaches to how we measure success in terms of economic policy. And that Mm. could flip a settlement that we've had for the last 40 years and actually start to deliver for people who haven't seen that for a very long time. But crucially, right now, what it could end up doing is helping us to build the resilience that we need in order to withstand future crises like this. So we're we're nearly out of time. I just wanted to ask you one final question. So I know from um, an interview d- that you did with my colleague Anoush recently, which for listeners is still on the New Statesman website. I know from that interview that you don't really like talking about yourself, and and you're much <laughs> and you're much more comfortable discussing policy, which is understandable. But given that there's a big human side to to this crisis and the emotional timbre of our politics has kind of shifted I was just wondering how how you and your family are doing and and how your lives have changed and also given that you know as an MPE you and colleagues are still in parliament and and how that feels 
so I mean I've got better at talking about myself although <laughs> I had there, was, to. <laughs> there was an interviewer a few years ago who said it was interviewing me was literally the worst hour of her life which was pretty damning oh I would disagree <laughs> um, so I've got I have got better at it definitely but it's partly a, a reluctance to talk about my family because it's their mm. stories to tell not mine but it's also, you know, politics has become very angry in recent years and it has been quite a difficult time. You know, every MP, particularly women MPs, have been targeted with threats towards them and their wider family. And that's been quite difficult. And I've tried to shield them from that. But I have got better at it because, you know, like like we said earlier, it really, really matters that people understand that politicians live the same lives as them and have as much riding on this as other people that we've got skin in the game and obviously with coronavirus I've got a four-year-old who's at school I've got elderly parents and my mum does a lot of the childcare, and so we're we're having to manage this a lot like other families we're in a, a better position because I mean there's not a lot of flexibility in being a leadership candidate but there is there is more flexibility than being you know a home care worker or a junior doctor at the moment and I'm very aware from talking to people in my constituency that there are a lot of people who've got it worse than us. But it's one of the reasons that I feel quite strongly about the vacuum of information, because we feel it too. And we're really mm. concerned about doing the right thing. But we need to know what the right thing is to do. And when the government chops and changes its advice, it causes real concern out in the population because people may have followed that advice and then feel that they're doing the wrong thing. So you know we're we're grappling with this as much as anyone else and trying Mm. to manage it and trying to get used to a very different reality in which I'm spending a lot less time in parliament or on the road and over the last hundred days I mean I think Becky and I have felt this particularly because we've I mean we've all got young kids in this contest but we live outside of London so it's we're away from home a lot more I've only briefly checked in with her over the last 24 hours but I think it's definitely been a bit of a shock to my family to have me at home this much you'll have to ask them what they think about that but it's been very very different I'm sure they're happy to have you Lisa thank you very much for your time no thanks a lot it's, it's been good and it you know it's important I think that we we grapple with these issues I know that you know a lot of people have in politics are really trying to get the balance right here we need to make sure that we ask the right questions that we hold the government to account and we get the right answers but we need to do it in a way that is constructive and gives people more confidence through this time. And thanks for the way that you've done the interview, because it, it's it's a hard balance to get right. But it is important that we don't all just disappear in a moment of national crisis. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anusha Kellyan and my colleagues, Stephen Bush, Patrick Maguire and Alva Ray. We're produced by Nick Hilton and our music is Devil by the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons by the Underscore Orchestra. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping 
and 365-day returns. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together, we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.